Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. The creation of the State of Israel began 75 years ago in an orgy of blood and terror, erasing innumerable Palestinian villages and exterminating their populations in cold blood. Palestinians who dared to attempt to return to their homes were systematically and mercilessly shot and killed, and a new state was built on the ashes of a martyred people driven out of their historic homes. Seventy-five years later, an unrelenting history of massacre after massacre, displacement after displacement, sadly comes back to haunt the perpetuators themselves in ways up to now never experienced by them as they continue their relentless colonization of every last morsel of the land of Palestine. In this context, the unspeakable atrocities and horrors that have transpired since Saturday, shocking and unacceptable as they may be, are unfortunately nothing new. The only thing new about them is that for the first time in over a century, substantial numbers of innocent civilians among the settler colonial communities have not been spared by the vicious indiscriminate violence. Will this shocking attack by Hamas be the prelude to yet another escalation by Israel, responded to by more blind rage and backlash from the Palestinians? Or can this, for a change, be an opportunity for all involved Israelis, Palestinians, and the international community to reset and seek a true and lasting peace based on justice, mutual respect, and human rights for all. This week, we discussed the horrific developments of the past few days with Palestinian analyst Moin Rabbani, an award-winning journalist and author, Anthony Lowenstein. In an article published this week titled Operation Al-Aqsa Storm, How, Why, and Where To?, Today's guest, Mu'in Rabbani, co-editor of Jadalia Izin and the host of Jadalia's Connections podcast, analyzes what may have led Hamas to launch its deadly attack on Israel. Mu'in Rabbani has published and commented widely on Palestinian affairs and the contemporary Middle East, and he spoke with Khalil Bendi. As we speak, thousands upon thousands of civilians are being killed, maimed, and displaced yet again from their homes. In a new article titled Operation Aqsa Storm, How, Why, and Where To, you tackle a number of interesting questions regarding the October 7 Hamas attack in occupied Palestine. The first one concerns the astounding failure of Israel's military intelligence to predict this attack. You say, quote, its primary failure was not ignorance, but the haughty dismissal of knowledge that contradicted preconceptions. End quote. Nobody expected this sort of thing to ever happen. Well, I think there are a number of factors that help explain that. Certainly an important one is that the Israeli military and the Israeli intelligence services are second to none when it comes to tooting their own horn. But in practice, they're also vastly uh, overrated. You know, there was an old saying about the Israeli military, uh, first world weapons, second world army, third world enemies. 
And mm. if we look at, uh, for example, Israel's experience in Lebanon, it was driven out by uh, Hezbollah, which didn't have even a tenth of the capacity during the 80s and the 90s that it has today. In uh, Gaza, it was driven out during the Second Intifada. Had absolutely no idea that its two largest Arab neighbors were preparing an offensive to recover their occupied territories in October 1973. So I would say it's a multidimensional failure. Certainly an important component of it is hubris and complacency and conceit. And what I would say is not a failure, but an incapacity to take Arab military adversaries seriously. That would be um, the first point. And the second, if we look specifically at the Gaza Strip, as you know, the Hamas movement seized power in the Gaza Strip in 2007 and has been ruling it for the past, give or take, two decades. And I think Israel looked at the situation and concluded, for reasons unbeknownst to any serious analyst, that Hamas cares solely and exclusively about maintaining its rule in the Gaza Strip, and that as long as Israel doesn't threaten the continuation of Hamas's rule in the Gaza Strip, it can safely ignore the movement that anything it says about either Palestinian national issues or anything that this avowedly Islamist movement says about the Al-Aqsa Mosque or anything it says about what's happening in the West Bank are really just rhetorical statements intended for public consumption and there's no um, substance behind it. And uh, we won't uh, interfere with their ability to continue their rule over uh, the Gaza Strip. And in exchange, we really don't have to worry about that. Then there is a third factor, which is that the Gaza Strip, as you know, is a, is a minuscule territory, which is the most intensely surveyed territory and population on the face of this earth. You know, if you send a text message, if you make a phone call, if you post something on social media, it reaches the Israelis before it reaches the intended recipient. And Israel felt that with such total information control, you know, through um, surveillance, through drones, electronic surveillance, and so on, that if there anything was going to happen, it would know about it immediately and clearly um, didn't know how to deal with the phenomenon of information overload, nor apparently was able to conceptualize that maybe those planning and preparing this attack were aware of how intensely surveyed they were and took countermeasures by, for example, not using electronic or digital communications or ensuring levels of encryption that Israel was unable to access even with its own, even with its own technology. Uh, so these are just some of the factors that I think help explain how Hamas was able to plan and prepare its October 7th offensive. And to that, I would also add that it appears it was a very compartmentalized preparation. It seems that very few people were actually fully aware of what was being planned. You mean even in Gaza? I mean, even within the senior ranks of the organization that led this, yes. Another interesting possibility you raise in your article, uh, reinforcing this notion that Israel's hubris and superiority complex may have led to its downfall in this instance, 
is what you speculate might have happened with some of Israel's human intelligence gathering. To quote you, you say, rather than serving as Israel's eyes and ears within the Gaza Strip, it seems likely that at least some of these Palestinians who were supposed to work for Israel conducted reconnaissance for Operation Aqsa Storm within Israel. And of course, tell us more about this. Yes, uh, this was a reference to what appears to be Hamas's significantly improved counterintelligence capabilities. One area where Israel has been successful in the past is in um, infiltrating Palestinian society and Palestinian militant organizations, particularly with informers and, and collaborators and the like, who, for example, played a key role in Israel's assassination campaign of Palestinian leaders. And in the context of the Gaza Strip and the hermetic blockade of the Gaza Strip in recent decades, what has happened is that if a Palestinian in the Gaza Strip, because of the situation there of uh, mass unemployment, virtually non-existent medical care and so on, needs to access, let's say, a hospital in Israel or the West Bank or uh, further beyond in Jordan or elsewhere, or seeks to obtain a work permit to in order to work within Israel, he then needs the approval of the Israeli authorities, and secondly, has to interact on an almost, particularly workers, interact with the um, Israeli authorities on an almost daily basis as they leave and return to the Gaza Strip. And this creates very significant opportunities for the Israeli intelligence services to recruit informers and collaborators by basically withholding things like, let's say, access to medical care for a child with leukemia, withholding a work permit for someone who's supporting not only their own large family, but also their extended family, unless and until that person agrees to serve as an informer. And in recent years, it appears that the permit system in the Gaza Strip has served as a key recruitment tool for Israeli intelligence. Now, again, we have to speculate because there's so much that is, as of now, either unknown or unverified. But it appears very clear that Hamas within the Gaza Strip was able to either interdict or prevent many of these informers from properly performing their assignments given to them by the Israelis, or turning them into double agents, or indeed using the permit system to infiltrate Palestinians into Israel to conduct, for example, reconnaissance missions. It may well be the case that they also had help in this respect from other quarters, but it's quite clearly one of the key aspects of Israel's intelligence failures. And in addition to that, one of the first attacks conducted by Hamas on the 7th of October was on the Erez crossing point on the boundary between the Gaza Strip and Israel, which is the main crossing point for people between the Gaza Strip and Israel. And they went in, they completely established full control over that crossing point. They managed to kill or capture all of the military personnel that are working there. And in addition to that, they managed to cart off all the computers and all the files that were located on those sites, including all of Israel's files on its Palestinian informers and collaborators 
in the Gaza Strip. Another puzzle is how, with Israel's comprehensive 24-7 spying on Gaza, how certain advanced capabilities may have been smuggled in to Gaza. You say that, quote, presumably with the assistance of Hezbollah in Lebanon, perhaps with the cooperation of sympathetic or corrupt Egyptian border patrols, and the legendary corruption of Israel's own border crossings with the Gaza Strip may also have played a role, end of quote. This is very interesting. We don't hear about this type of, uh, you know, this, <laughs> these little granular observations in the field, the corruption of local officials, whether they be Egyptian, Israeli, etc. Tell us more. Well, first of all, I, I have to say that this is, I believe, a secondary issue because Palestinians of the Gaza Strip are renowned for their resourcefulness and their ingenious use of their very limited resources to make daily life work at some level of normality. I mean, just to give you an indication, in a previous siege and the interdiction of all fuel supplies entering the Gaza Strip, cars and taxis were, were no longer able to use the roads in the Gaza Strip. And what we saw very quickly was Palestinian mechanics adapting cars and taxis within the Gaza Strip so that they could run on cooking oil. And a friend of mine at the time said, you know, the entire city is smelling like a falafel stand. Um, <laughs> and this is just one of innumerable examples. But there clearly has been transfer of technology, if you will, to the Gaza Strip. But most importantly is that most of the um, equipment preparations and so on for the October 7th offensive were locally sourced. To give you an example, there is, I believe it's a British ship that sank off the coast of Gaza decades ago. You know, And because it's off the coast of Gaza, the Israelis never bothered to remove and salvage it. And we learned a few years ago that Hamas divers were going to the ship, which is located quite close to the shore, and cutting off steel plates from it, and subsequently using those plates to manufacture rocket tubes and launchers and so on. In addition, because Israel has dropped such huge amounts of high explosives on Gaza over the years, engineers from these movements learned how to use unexploded ordnance to create projectiles to fire right back at their original owners and so on and so forth. To clarify further, until around 2015, there was an extensive network of tunnels running between Al-Arish or east of Al-Arish in the northern Sinai Strip and into Rafah, which is the southernmost city in the Gaza Strip, a very extensive network in which and everything from people to livestock to automobiles was being smuggled into the Gaza Strip to get around the um, Egyptian-Israeli blockade of that territory. And after the overthrow of the Libyan regime of Muammar al-Qaddafi and the descent of that country into chaos and anarchy, huge amounts of military equipment were smuggled into the Gaza Strip through the Sinai Peninsula. 
So that is where I think the largest amount of the equipment came from. Having said that, there is also, of course, a role for, let's say, uh, using legitimate trade to smuggle in things. And here, you know, you can have Egyptian officials who have been guarding the entry to the Gaza Strip. And this is something that acquired increasing importance in recent years as the Sisi government in Egypt has sought to systematically shut down this tunnel network. That's a campaign that has been overwhelmingly successful. It may well be that it wasn't completely successful. But then the ability to appeal to the national sympathies of an Egyptian official on this border or to bribe him acquires greater importance. Similarly, you speak to Palestinian businessmen in the Gaza Strip, and they can keep you up all night with stories about the corruption of the Israeli officials who manned the Karim Abu Salem crossing between Israel and the Gaza Strip. And that has quite clearly been used as well, perhaps not with their knowledge that they were accepting goodies and perks in order to be able to smuggle military equipment into the Gaza Strip, but that certainly appears to have been part of the uh, equation. A more difficult question that you pose and that we all wonder about is concerns uh, Hamas's motives and broader aims in this campaign, this recent attack. What was, in your opinion, Operation Aqsa Storm meant to achieve? Well, I think what it was meant to achieve was to shatter the status quo and to make it an untenable proposition for the future. Hamas has claimed in its uh, statement that it had acquired or confirmed reports that Israel was planning a major operation against the Gaza Strip at the conclusion of the Jewish holidays and that therefore they were also seeking to present this offensive as a preemptive initiative. But I don't think that's a very compelling explanation, among other reasons, because this would have taken um, so long to prepare. But quite clearly, I think, you know, we spoke earlier how Israel's attitude to the Gaza Strip was that the Gaza Strip and the suffering of its people and the demands of the Hamas movement that rules it can be safely ignored. And what they sought to do here was to demonstrate you need to take us seriously. And simply maintaining the status quo of having the Gaza Strip on effectively a starvation diet, a blockade now that's two decades old, on a territory that's been occupied now for over half a century, inhabited by a population 75% of whom are dispossessed and often impoverished uh, refugees who were ethnically cleansed from their homes and homeland in 1948, so the better part of eight decades ago, Hamas wanted to definitively puncture the status quo. That's part one. Part two is I think Hamas also felt that Israel had gone too far for too long. Growing incursions of the Haram al-Sharif, the, the compounds, that includes the Al-Aqsa Mosque uh, by prominent Israeli politicians and settler groups, the intensified colonization of the West Bank and virtually daily settler pogroms there as a means to, in the words of the current Israeli government, to explicitly prepare it for permanent annexation. And this idea, what U.S. National uh, Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said, that the Middle East hasn't been this quiet in two decades. And therefore, 
why should we in the least give any um, consideration to these pesky Palestinians or their demands? And that, I think, is the general background to what we saw on the 7th of October. Having said that, I haven't yet seen any clear strategic objectives to what Hamas was hoping to achieve in the sense that, okay, they wanted to shatter the status quo and they say it's premature, but they haven't yet put forward any clear demands such as we want a definitive end to the Israeli occupation of the Gaza Strip, we want our Palestinian state, we want to liberate all of Palestine, whatever it may be, they have not put forward a clear political agenda that their spectacular operation was intended to achieve. Now, the other point I would make is, why did they do what they do? Well, I think my suspicion is that Hamas looked back to its recent experience, and particularly um, what's known among Palestinians as a unity uprising in 2021, where for the first time in confrontations between Hamas and the Israeli military, it was Hamas rather than the Israeli military that took the initiative. And not only that, Hamas took the initiative for the first time on account of issues that had nothing to do with the Gaza Strip, but everything to do with the deteriorating situation in Jerusalem and the Al-Aqsa Mosque and Haram al-Sharif compound in particular. They fired missiles at Tel Aviv, at Israel's uh, main international airport. Conflict went on, I believe, for uh, a few weeks. A ceasefire was reached, and at the end, nothing changed. Israel continued to increase the number of Palestinian prisoners in its jails. As we've just been discussing, colonization in the West Bank intensified, the blockade went on undiminished. And I think in that context, Hamas and its leadership concluded, we need to do something that will genuinely shake the ground beneath Israel's feet, something that will have a similar psychological impact to, as it's often compared to these days, rightly or wrongly, to the joint Egyptian-Syrian offensive at, at the opening of the 1973 October War. Another question you raise in your article is the timing of this operation. You call it curious, quote-unquote. Well, just to conclude my response to your previous question, I mean, um, Hamas has called it Operation Al-Aqsa Deluz. I think perhaps more accurately, they could have called it Operation Prison Break. I found the timing curious in the sense that there wasn't a particular event or incident that would explain why it took place on October 7th, but not August 7th or December 7th. Now, that could have been for operational reasons in the sense that Hamas um, had indications that its operational security was being compromised. It could have been the symbolism of doing this on the 50th anniversary of the 1973 October War all but one day. There could have been other reasons, but normally when you look at these things, you can find something not only in the broader context, but also in the immediate context that would help explain why something happened on this day and not that day. And I haven't really been able to determine that with respect to this issue. The one thing that I would say is that I find all the analysis that everything that we've seen was done for the purpose of sabotaging an impending 
Saudi-Israeli normalization agreement, unpersuasive and unconvincing in the extreme. You also say that conventional wisdom held that Israel's various adversaries were content with a strategy of managed escalation so as not to interrupt the growing polarization and dysfunction within the Israeli political arena. I was saying that the one thing that I find completely unpersuasive and unconvincing, and this has to do with both the timing and the reasons um, for what happened, is that this was somehow a desperate roll of the dice to sabotage the prospects of an impending Israeli-Saudi normalization agreement. I mean, if you look at the scale of what happened, and what Hamas must have anticipated as the scale of the Israeli response. There is no way that it would have done this in the vain hope that they could stop an impending diplomatic agreement. And the reasons for that are several, which is that, first of all, Hamas will already have concluded that the prospect of this agreement being consummated are slim to none, because we're not just talking about a Saudi-Israeli agreement, but an Israeli Saudi-American agreement, a core element of which is that the United States will give Saudi Arabia a nuclear reactor with uranium enrichment capabilities and a security guarantee somewhat akin to that which it gives its, its allies in the NATO alliance. Now, anyone who knows anything about U.S. politics, or anyone who even doesn't know anything about U.S. politics, will immediately tell you nothing like this is ever going to get through the U.S. Congress, whether it's President Biden and, and the Democratic Party or even a Republican successor. Secondly, one element of this agreement is that Israel will provide certain effectively cosmetic um, uh gestures towards the Palestinians. But even though they are of a purely cosmetic nature, they would never get through um, uh, the Israeli government uh, because it has, you know, the inmates there have taken over the asylum and there's no way this Israeli government would ever agree to it. And, you know, um, uh, Netanyahu is not going to ditch his current coalition partners um, for a different uh, set of coalition partners in order to push through this agreement because then he vastly increases his prospect of ending up in a prison cell um, due to uh, uh, conviction for corruption. But even if he does, his main alternative to his current coalition partners have already said that they would not accept any deal that a key component of which is the United States providing Saudi Arabia with uranium enrichment capacities. As you know, Israel has been in a very deep political crisis since Netanyahu resumed office, I believe in late December of last year, because of his uh, legislative agenda concerning Israel's judiciary. And this has not only created unprecedented levels of polarization with Israeli society and unprecedented misgivings among Israel's international Western effectively allies, you know, people who really couldn't be bothered by any policy that Israel pursues towards the Palestinians were on the verge of being up in arms over a legislative agenda about uh, the Israeli judiciary. But And more importantly, you began to witness cracks and fissures in 
Israel's security establishment, where you had, for example, elite pilots saying they would no longer do uh, reserve duty, and you began to see a wave of refusal by military reservists uh, to report for duty and so on. And in this context, it was assumed conventional wisdom, and I'll plead guilty to being part of that conventional wisdom, was that organizations like Hamas and Hezbollah and Lebanon and others were quite content to sit in their armchairs, light up a cigar, grab a bag of popcorn, and watch (laughs) Israel propel itself deeper and deeper into this, not only political, but really also institutional and to some extent social crisis. And it it struck me, for example, that on the Lebanese uh, border, that Hezbollah was reacting or almost not reacting to a whole series of Israeli provocations uh, over the past year where you might have thought that they normally would. Well, the conventional wisdom was clearly mistaken. Now, did Hamas simply not grasp the significance of what was happening in, in Israel? And if they had, would they have waited for another six months or a year? Or did they conclude that it was precisely because of the crisis that was an opportune time to strike without taking into account um, that this would help Israel overcome many of these uh, internal fissures? I really don't know. It does seem also that perhaps those who planned this attack felt that this would be an opportune method of demonstrating the weakness and failure of Israel's unprecedentedly extremist leadership. One last question, an important question I want to ask you that has preoccupied many, is the question of the moral high ground. Mm-hmm. Israel Israel was born in a gigantic bloodbath and complete mm-hmm. terror in 1948. The population of entire villages like Deir Yassin were massacred and wiped out and the world remained silent. Having said that, might not the level of violence and ruthlessness demonstrated by Hamas fighters Saturday alienate increasing numbers of sympathizers worldwide, and might it not also backfire strategically? As you know, Palestine solidarity over the decades has become an international symbol, and certain images of violence against civilians may be hard to stomach and may backfire in terms of the image of of Palestinian resistance, even if Israel does in fact kill and maim a thousand times more civilians than Hamas does. Is armed struggle the only way left? And if so, does this, I know it's a huge question, mean an eye for an eye and disregarding Geneva conventions the same way Israel does? Well, I I think that's not only a crucially important, but also an entirely legitimate question. And I'd I'd like to separate its elements. Regarding armed struggle, I think we can have a discussion about its its wisdom as a tactic and whether or not it should be used. I think um, we should have a separate program on this. You're right. Well, yes, question. But, yes. yes. But I don't think unless one is a consistent pacifist in each and every situation one encounters in life, I don't think one can say that a national liberation movement using armed struggle is fundamentally a question of morality. I think what we're really talking about here is either the deliberate targeting of civilian non-combatants or a failure to observe the laws of war. Now, 
I think the laws of war are very clear. And what I've always felt about people who are always on a rush to condemn Palestinian actions that have Israeli civilian casualties, but really have nothing to say about Israeli actions that result in Palestinian civilian casualties, is that you're not supporting a principle. Let's not fool ourselves. You're not supporting a principle. You're supporting a state. And you're deliberately and cynically exploiting a principle in order to enhance support of a state. Because you can't possibly say that you are against the either deliberate or indiscriminate killing of civilians, but only oppose it in one context and effectively support it in another. And I think as Palestinians, that is a standard we have to apply to ourselves as well. Now, having said that, in the context of what we've seen in the past few days, we've seen a number of horrific reports that appear to be on their way to being substantiated. And we've seen, I would say, thus far an equal number of even more horrific stories that have been demonstrated to be unsubstantiated. I mean, stories about, for example, Hamas fighters beheading babies and so on. And I think this is part of an effort to kind of place Hamas in kind of the same basket as Al-Qaeda and ISIS and so on, because that will resonate very well with the Western public. So I still have several unanswered questions. And as I await the answers to those questions, I want to make clear that I am supporting a principle, not a state or a cause, and that the principle that I support applies equally in all situations. Has there indeed been a mass loss of, of civilian life? If there has, was this the result of a explicit orders given by commanders to their fighters to kill as many civilians as possible in order to make this operation even more spectacular? Or was it a case of many of those civilians, for example, dying in crossfire as the Israeli military attempted to reconquer Israeli territory um, that had been controlled by Hamas and Islamic Jihad militants? Or was it perhaps a case of individual Hamas fighters either having received no orders on this issue one way or the other, or perhaps even orders not to behave in this manner, leaving the Gaza Strip, knowing that this is perhaps their last day on this earth, entering these very plush Israeli uh, population centers, and holding Israel and Israeli society, and in this particular instance, um, the Israeli civilians that they confronted face-to-face, -face, perhaps for the first time, responsible for all the, all the horrific injustices perpetrated against the Gaza Strip and its people over the years, did they decide that as part of their final act on this earth, they were going to give Israel a taste of its own medicine by conducting unjustifiable acts against civilian non-combatants. And I think it's it's these kind of issues that also need to be investigated. I would also like to understand who was a genius who decided it would be entirely appropriate 
to hold the rave party within spitting distance of the concentration camp that is the Gaza Strip. So I think, you know, we have principles. I think we're under an obligation to uphold those principles. And I also think we have a number of questions that require clear answers. Muin Rabboni has published and commented widely on Palestinian affairs and the contemporary Middle East. He is co-editor of Jadalia Izin and the host of Connections podcast. He spoke with Khalil Bendib. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Anthony Lonstein's new book, The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World, provides a fascinating window into Israel's powerful innovations in the field of occupation and repression. Khalil Bendib spoke with the award-winning journalist about how it came to pass that all of Israel's brilliant machinations were not enough to prevent a low-tech attack by Hamas that has devastated the population of Israel. Anthony, let me begin by stating that we at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa are deeply saddened by the loss of thousands of lives on both sides since Saturday, as I'm sure you are too, and by the continuing atrocities that we unfortunately witness day after day. Our thoughts are with the families of the victims on both sides of the border. I hope you didn't have any family or friends there among those who suffered directly from these atrocities. Um, well, thank you for saying that. I didn't. It's the short answer. I actually don't really have, uh, I'm Jewish, but I don't have any family. I have a very distant family in Israel that I'm not in touch with. I haven't for years, but I, I've been in touch in the last days with friends in Gaza and Israel who are currently fine. Thankfully. I mean, obviously, the friend in Gaza, I'm in some ways more worried about because of what's happening and what is clearly about to happen in the coming weeks and months, which is a a mass Israeli ground invasion that is only a matter of days, I think. So that's a pretty petrifying thought with the 110% Western support, which is maybe what some people think always happens. But this feels actually on an even deeper level than it's happened, certainly in my lifetime. Yes. And that's a scary prospect when Israel already enjoys complete impunity. How do you get more impunity than complete impunity? Yeah, everyday new horrors on both sides, massacre after massacre, whose cruelty, frankly, is hard to fathom. And as much as we mourn the loss of Israeli innocent lives in Israel, we also denounce the horrible and constant price paid by innocent Palestinians, something Mm -hmm. that Israeli generals like to call, quote, mowing the lawn every few years in Gaza, killing, maiming, displacing hundreds of thousands of Palestinians. Anthony, in your book, The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation, you document how Israel has long taken pride in the sophistication and supposed infallibility of its intelligence services. It was generally assumed that nothing much could happen in Gaza without Israel knowing about it. How do you explain this epic failure? In reality, it was a massive intelligence failure. And obviously, like everyone, I'm trying to understand how this could happen. I mean, there was an interesting report 
a few days ago put out by Reuters, which did some really good investigation with pretty solid sources on both the Israeli and Hamas sides. The short answer seems to be that Hamas was very cleverly able to mask its activities by fooling Israeli government and intelligence officials that they were committed or at least determined to maintain so-called peace with Israel. Of course, it was always a cold peace, but that they had no real serious plans to escalate. And they they essentially fooled enough Israeli intelligence officials. I think what also came out in the last days, and no doubt there'll be investigations within Israel once the current conflict has died down, which I suspect will be months away, Israel, I think, has, and I talk about this in the book, Israel in some ways has increasingly and overly relied on high-tech surveillance instead of human intelligence, how it used to be done years ago before the digital era. And what appears to have happened in this case was a few things. One, with the current far-right Israeli government, there was an obsession with the West Bank occupation and deepening that. And there had been, of course, unrest this year, unrest namely meaning a huge increase in Jewish settler attacks and pogroms against Palestinians and huge numbers of civilians being killed, Palestinian civilians. And so many of the Israeli troops had been moved into the West Bank. Secondly, of course, it happened over a weekend where it was a Jewish holiday. So people, not unlike what happened in 1973 with the Yom Kippur War, where the Arab neighbouring Arab states surprised Israel at a time where Israel maybe wasn't as ready as they would have been in the past. And having gone through the, the areas checkpoint between Israel and Gaza, it's this basically this concrete jungle. I mean, my partner and I, who both went through there separately years ago, were kind of astounded that there was an ability to breach that. I mean, when you go there, it just feels unbreachable. And what seems to have happened was there could have been a cyber attack from Hamas to lower any kind of surveillance technology around. So on the face of it, it it clearly is an intelligence failure. One thing that I think is clear, and of course it's early days and we don't know how this is all going to play out, but I'm moderately confident that Israel's defence sector, arms industry, surveillance industry, which has thrived for decades, but especially since 9-11, is actually going to benefit from this in the long run. And what I mean by that is, yes, there's been a massive failure. There'll be an investigation. Some heads will roll. Eventually, Netanyahu himself may well fall as prime minister. Would not surprise me. But ultimately, I see in the last days really uh, huge, although not surprising, Western backing for Israel, framing it as Israel's 9-11, giving them 110% support. And I feel like there's a good chance, very good chance, actually, that Israel's surveillance apparatus and weapons, in fact, will be bought by huge numbers of nations after this. In other words, it won't impact. And I say that for just finally one reason. After the Russian invasion of Ukraine last year, um, Israel's arms industry has been thriving, amongst other reasons. And the Russian invasion of Ukraine is still going on. It's bloody, and we don't read about it much this week, but it's still incredibly brutal. And all those European nations that had wanted to buy missile defence shields, another kind of technology, I don't see them suddenly not wanting to purchase more. Israel's taken a a hit. Undeniably, that's true. But I don't think that the thesis of the book, and more importantly, Israel's much vaunted intelligence uh, apparatus, will in the long run affect the arms industry there. It affects the reputation. That's different. And I'm moderately confident that industry will do just fine. Amir Avivi, a retired Israeli general and president and founder of Israel Defense and Security Forum, a hawkish group 
former military commanders, said that without a foothold inside Gaza, Israel's security services have come to rely increasingly on technological means to gain intelligence, as you were saying. Mm. He said that militants in Gaza have found ways to evade that, that technological intelligence gathering, giving Israel an incomplete picture of their intentions. Quote, the other side learned to deal with our technological dominance and they stopped using technology that could expose it, end quote, said Avivi, who served as a conduit for intelligence materials under a former military chief of staff. Then he says again, they've gone back to the Stone Age, end quote. He yeah. said, explaining that militants weren't using phones or computers, but were conducting their sensitive business in rooms specially guarded from technological espionage or going underground. Is this realization that military technology can't fix every security challenge? Is this realization a major setback for Israel? Or can they just find another technological well, I think they'll adapt to, to fix that as well. I think they'll adapt. You know, the comparison, I think, and not particularly because I'm saying that this is so-called Israel's 9-11 to the 9-11 in America, but just think about that event in the U.S. It was undeniably a massive intelligence breach. I mean, how was 19 hijackers able to take off on planes and kill nearly 3,000 Americans? I mean, in any definition, the 9-11 in America was a catastrophic failure of intelligence services, and it emerged years after that the CIA and FBI were conflicting, there was no better organization, and that was a massive fail by the intelligence services, but also the Bush administration. Now, you look forward to what happened. The Bush administration was re-elected in 2004. The arms industry after the Iraq and Afghan war surged for 20-odd years, did incredibly well. Now, I'm not saying the comparison is exact, it's not, but I guess I use that comparison to suggest that an intelligence failure, as 9-11 in the US undeniably was, as clearly this horrific attack in Israel was equally a massive intelligence failure. The US adapted in inverted commas. And what did they do to adapt? And this is what concerns me about using the 9-11 comparison, as so many commentators and politicians, Netanyahu has used it himself, is that the way the US responded to 9-11, as anyone listening to this is well aware, was unleashing mass carnage around the world and mass surveilling huge numbers of Muslims in the in the US within its own borders. Now, what Israel might do won't be exactly the same. Israel's not about to invade Afghanistan or Iraq. But the fear that I have is that this is not going to stop in just Gaza. And what I mean by that is that I think it's very likely in the months and years ahead that there will be, which Israel has did much more in decades past, a very large global assassination program to take out who they regard as enemies as bad as it is now a regional war of course it onto a whole different petrifying level so this is in the midterm or mid to long term but how about in the short term are you not worried about what's going to happen with gaza and all the, the i am no i'm incredibly worried you know usually it ends up when they're quote unquote mowed alone ends up with thousands of dead mm. what will it be this time obviously i don't want to you know put a potential death toll on it because that is impossible to say but the fear is two things here. One, that Israel is about to clearly deploy ground troops of a huge amount of people. And in the last 20 years, there have not been many ground invasions of Gaza. Whenever they have happened, they've been catastrophic for the Gazan people, of course. And But this time is different because I do not see a scenario where Israel will accept Hamas leadership ruling Gaza. Now, the obvious question is, 
well, what are they going to do about that? Can they get decapitate that leadership? And I sort of compare that. I've been thinking a lot about this this week. I compare it a lot to the US in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, the US took uh, overthrew the Taliban within about a month. They overthrew Saddam within about three weeks in Iraq. That was the easy part. What came afterwards for decade, two decades, was an insurgency, was a guerrilla war, and America was flailing about. I did not see it being that different in, in, in Gaza. And, of course, the larger question is, apart from the potential massive death toll, which much of the West, I suspect, will have no problem accepting and probably encouraging, including the US, is what happens to the Gazan people if Hamas is not in control of that area? Who rules Gaza? Not, this is not to say that I support Hamas. I've said for years and written for years, Hamas is a brutal, thuggish organisation. I've got no time for Hamas at all. But there are many on the Israeli far right, including in the current government, who have said for years, and they've reiterated it this year and particularly this week, they want to get back into Gaza. When I say get back in, I mean, they've been occupying it for years. I'm talking about having Israeli troops on the ground. I'm talking about bringing back settlements into Gaza. That's one fear. The other fear is, which I'm already seeing some Israeli commentators pushing for, is the idea of finding a moment, which could be this one, of of the world, or at least the US, accepting the possibility of mass transfer of Palestinians out of Gaza to where, you might ask, a neighbouring country, Egypt. Now, maybe not 2 million people, maybe... 100,000, 200,000. Obviously, I can't predict exactly what it's going to look like. Under the guise of, we're going to bomb Gaza to the Stone Age. We're doing it for their protection. I mean, you can make up any justification you want. Could Egypt accept that if they get bribed enough, possibly? Who knows? That, to me, is the potential nightmare scenario because, as I say in the book and I've said elsewhere, that there is a vision on the Israeli, not even just the Israeli right. It's also disturbingly a lot of the mainstream is that they didn't, in their view, finish the job in 1948. And what better opportunity when the vast bulk of the world is in sympathy with Israel of finding a justification for doing so? Now, of course, that might not happen, but you can certainly, it's more imaginable now than it has been for arguably decades. And that's a petrifying thought. Yes, that's exactly one uh, fear I've had ever since, I think, the 90s that the Israelis, consciously or not, were probably consciously, were encouraging more violence on the part of the Palestinians mm. as a way to justify a mass transfer like they did yes. in 48, like they did in 67, as an excuse to say, look, we obviously we can't live with these people. They've just killed X number of us. Yes. We have no choice. That's always what I've feared might happen at some point. This is getting close to that kind of nightmare scenario. Exactly, because one of the things I say in the book is that the people who are advocating that within Israel, including in the current Israeli government, what was always unclear was what is the moment that would, inverted commas, provide the justification to at least try to do that? And, you know, I always sort of said it may be some war, something unpredictable. You know, you don't know what's going to happen. This could be that moment. And this yeah. is one of the worst terrorist attacks in Israel's history. Undeniably, the death toll is going to keep rising. There could be, and with when, not if, when Israel sends its ground troops into Gaza, it is going to be ugly and bloody and brutal and it'll be street to street and it'll be urban guerrilla warfare and the death toll is going to surge, clearly on the Palestinian side, obviously, but also on the Israeli side. And much of the West will support Israel. We all know that. And the question is, of course, what do the Arab countries do? 
<laughs> Arab leadership, I should say, who clearly have been complicit with Israel for years, partly because they were so desperate for Israeli surveillance technologies I discuss extensively in the book, they're now in a bit of an interesting position because my guess would be that publicly they feel like they have to be a little bit balanced, but privately, 110% supporting Israel. I don't doubt that for a second. They don't want to have, they don't want to have any, I mean, some of them have housed and looked after Hamas leaders. My guess is Hamas may find it more and more difficult to find a home after this. And I'm talking about the leadership, who are the ones who survive. And I suspect Israel will make it its job to, to knock most of them off. That's where I think this is going. Yes, and you're not just speculating. Egypt has been warning Israel about something like this happening recently. And Israel just apparently discarded that as uh, just incompetence or, or paranoia. They just didn't take the Egyptians seriously. So the Egyptians have been already well that was so interesting wasn't it i mean i saw those reports too and it's really hard to know how to how to gauge that what was the information was it very general was it specific i mean i don't know beyond i'm sure what you've read in the press Mm -hmm. so i don't know and of course as listeners will be well aware egypt does not like hamas who are connected to the muslim brotherhood who've i mean egypt has imprisoned tens and tens of thousands of brotherhoods members in egypt so as far as they're concerned, they'd be very happy for Hamas to be extinguished and support that 110%. So Egypt's position won't change. Would Egypt, with huge amounts of bribes, take in a large amount of Palestinians from Gaza or Jordan, for that matter, or Lebanon? And Lebanon, of course, is already economically on its knees. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think it's impossible. Maybe not 2 million, but certainly a decent amount of Palestinians. Sure, maybe. It's a petrifying thought. Yes. With this kind of dynamic, not only continuing, but getting exaggerated of Israel being intransigent and all of Europe and and the US right behind it, Mm. is there any chance at some point, some miraculous point, that Israel will see that perhaps there is no military solution to the Palestinian problem? Or is that now becoming like science fiction, impossible? Mm. In the short term, I think the short answer is no. My, I think the only way that Israel would potentially recognize that is to some extent what the US finally recognized in Iraq and Afghanistan. It was a war they were never going to win. America withdrew from Afghanistan after 20 years of carnage. They've sort of withdrawn from Iraq. There's obviously still American presence there. I could imagine if there is a, a Netanyahu has said that there's going to be a long drawn out battle over Gaza, if that ground troop battle gets bloody, which it will, that is when an Israeli soldiers start coming home in huge amounts of body bags. Those questions get asked. Mm. Undeniably, they get asked within the Israeli elite. Uh, at the same time, and this I sort of compare this again to the US in 9-11. I mean, you guys would know that <laughs> having been there, that there was bloodlust in America after that event. There was absolute bloodlust. Let's go after those terrorists and just kill them wherever they may be. That attitude is exactly the same in Israel. I'm not saying everybody. Gideon Levy, a good friend of mine, who's a a, a very rare, sane voice for Haaretz, bless him, who's been saying some very brave things the last few days and, frankly, for 30 years. There are voices like his, but he is in a tiny, tiny minority. He himself would admit that. There is bloodlust within Israel, and... I don't really see that view changing. There is anger towards Hamas, but there's also government. 
I mean, I'm seeing a lot of clips on Israeli TV of people whose families either were killed or they have kidnapped family members or friends, presumably in Gaza somewhere in a tunnel, God help them, who are just so furious with the government and the intelligence services. So it's a really toxic mix. So, yeah, I fear that that bloodlust is insatiable for a while. Of course, I agree with you, just to final, to finish, there isn't a military solution to this conflict. That's undeniably true. But I think that the Western support for Israel, which has always been so strong, has just been taken to a new unprecedented level. And that's not the message Israel will view. That's not what they'll hear. They will hear, we can basically cause carnage in Gaza and the world's going to turn a blind eye. Or, or for that matter, support it. Joe Biden, as I'm sure listeners all have heard, did gave a talk at the White House and pretty much said that. We have Israel's back. We're sending them weapons as we speak. Do what you need to do. Well, what that's, you can't get a much clearer message than that, can you? No. And that's what exactly, as you were saying, the U.S. did in Iraq. One million Iraqi dead. And yep. uh, may, maybe that calmed the, the bloodlust a little a little yeah, bit in the, Amer- little in the American bit. elites, yes, but or the American mil- well, certainly within the American public, I think. But you know what? What's always so uncontrollable is that I think you guys know this too. If there was another mass terrorist attack in America, God forbid, God we forbid. all know what the response would be. It would be literally no different to what happened two decades ago. No different. Nothing would have changed. Whether it was directed at some, if it's from an Arab or Muslim country, nothing would have changed. Nothing would have changed. And that bloodlust, I think, would be real. Anthony Lonstein is an award-winning journalist and the author of The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. He spoke with Khalil Bendit. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening.